Hello, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. Thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Howell, as usual, and and uh, you know he's a scholar. I'm just the old basketball player, but it's good to have you here, Ken, joining me again as we as we enjoy uh, being deep in Scripture. Uh, if if you're new to the program, you can go to deepinscripture.com, or uh, and you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. That's the Coming Home Network website. We'd love to hear from you. Ken and I have been working through uh, a this book of Romans now for Ken. It's been about half a year, mm-hmm. and but we're getting close to the end. Uh, we're going to look today at chapter 13. We began that last week. If you go to the website, if you, you can hear what we talked about previously. This is a very important chapter today for a number of reasons. Because in chapter 13, and we'll get to it in a moment, he's dealing with, as Christians, what is our responsibility to those who govern over us in our culture? Um, what about paying taxes to our government? Um, what about uh, the, uh, our relationship, our responsibility to our neighbors? And is there an urgency to this? How important are these thoughts by Paul? Are they merely his suggestions for those first Christians, or do they apply to us? And we're going to talk about all that in a moment. We did get a, an email. Ken, we, uh, we always like to begin with an email, and it's a good email. It's, uh, it deals with the very topic we're looking at. I think this uh, emailer was anticipating our discussions on Romans 13. When he said, Dear Ken and Marcus, how do you juxtapose these exhortations by St. Paul with the fact that many of the earliest Christian martyrs whom we are called to emulate and honor died specifically because they were refusing to be subject to Rome? And he says, thanks, Steve. I mean, that's a good question, Ken. I mean, we look at, Paul says, Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 6, for the same reason you also pay taxes. And so there's a law we'll talk about in a moment, but all the stuff that he's saying here, yet we recognize in the early church fathers, in the writings of, especially you, you did, Ken, the, uh, you did a new translation of Polycarp and you know, referencing his own martyrdom. Uh, how do we deal with these statements when we recognize that many of the earliest martyrs were martyred because they were considered uh, disobedient to the civil authorities. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, but it also points out the need to understand uh, history accurately because, um, and I've seen this so many times by uh, people in our culture that think that liberty means uh, libertarianism and so forth, what are the principles that are being stated, for example, in the Constitution as opposed to false understandings of those principles? And similarly here, it's not just that they refused to be subject to Rome. They didn't. The early martyrs, the ones that are at least hailed by the Church, that are recognized by uh, subsequent Christian history and the Church officially, it's not that they were refusing to be subject to Rome. They were living according to those laws insofar as those laws were consistent with the law of God. 
But where they refused was when the church, or excuse me, when the government demanded loyalty to it, that government above that of Rome. Let me give you two instances. Um, one is in what you already mentioned in, in the most famous and the earliest mar- count of martyrdom, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Party, Polycarp there, in fact, discusses, or the author discusses, the difference between true martyrdom and false martyrdom. And the false martyrdom there is offering oneself to martyrdom, but then, in fact, withdrawing from that when the going gets rough. Whereas he speaks about true martyrdom as a martyrdom which attempts to be live in accord and peace with what the government and the culture around us says until that point where they demand of us an allegiance um, that is above allegiance to Christ. Something similar happens almost three centuries later in the 250s in North Africa, in Carthage, during the Deci, uh, excuse me, yeah, the persecution under the Roman uh, Emperor Decius, and then under uh, the next one uh, after that, Valerian. And what what you have there is different Christians responding differently to the same demand. And what was the demand under Decius? It was allegiance to the government. And it wasn't necessarily that Decius was being proclaimed to God. It was just a question of political obedience. Who is your greatest obedience to? Is it to your religion, or that is to Christ, or is it to uh, the emperor? And it's only when those two come in conflict when we see true martyrdom uh, taking place. But that so that means that there's not really a conflict between what Paul is that Paul is saying here and what those martyrs experienced. Paul is saying live in accord with the governmental requirements in as much as those requirements or insofar as those requirements are um, for the good. And he says that, that the government is considered to be appointed by God for rewarding the good and punishing the evil. So insofar as it's doing that, we should live in accord with those principles. You know, Ken, it reminds me of, of something else which hits close to home, Ken, and that is that one of the the black myths that um, I don't know if you believed or I, be, I believe deeply, I can't remember, I'm getting old, you know, back <laughs> in my pre-Catholic days when I was a life, you know, I was a cradle Lutheran and, uh, and then later an evangelical and became a Presbyterian pastor. Um, but I became well aware that coming, stemming from um, Reformation England, um, and then when the dissenters left England in the mid-17th century, early 17th century, to come to the colonies, that one of the fears they had of Catholics was that Catholics were obligated to obey the Pope over the civil authorities in England, yeah. And in the colonies, and that was a. And then when they brought that with them from, from England, although the the pilgrims weren't escaping Rome, they were escaping England. In, you know, they were dissenting against the Church of England, right. and they wanted the freedom of the the new colonies, establishing a new Jerusalem when they landed in 1620, 
1618 and 1620 to establish the colonies. But from that time until after the American Revolution, so from 1620s until 1770s, 1780s, there were no Catholics at all in New England. Um, There were no priests. There were nothing. We had the Puritan writers that were inflaming the fear of papism in New England when there were no Catholics. The only Catholics nearby were the ones that were persecuted down in Maryland colony and were freed to live in the Pennsylvania colony or up north in Quebec where you had Catholicism established in 1770, I think it was three by the Quebec Act. So there was still this this rising fear amongst the colonies, and then it was dissuaged during the American Revolution when we had to lean on France to open the door for us to defend with us against England. But the reason I bring this up is that when, when the first constitutions were established, there were many colonials that were hesitant to take the religious uh, stipulations out of the Constitution for legal positions, because up until then, you could not be a Catholic and hold a, a political office because they were afraid that Catholics had more loyalty to Pope than, yeah. than the colonies. And that was one of the first issues that the first Catholic bishop in America, John Carroll, had to deal with, was how do you now have Catholic Americans who are free to be Americans Mm-hmm. yet become a part of America when there's this underlying fear that Catholic Americans can never be true Americans because of our superior loyalty to the Pope. Well, look, and look, uh, that, that fear endured almost 200 years to the point where uh, at the time, uh, just before 1960 with John F. Kennedy, was e- elected um you had people asking the question: you know, Is there going to be some kind of secret line to the, uh, secret phone line to the, to the papacy, to the Vatican, yep. and and uh, this this Catholic, the first Catholic president of the United States, is he going to simply be a, uh, you know, a local man implementing the, um, the designs of the Pope, uh, over in Rome, some foreign ruler? Can he truly be American? Well. Uh, for better or for worse, John F. Kennedy showed he could be a true American because he didn't follow the church in very many in very many ways. <laughs> Sadly, nor, nor was his nor was his family. Now you and I believe, and and I think that you'll find many who grew up in that same era would say yes, a Catholic can be a true American, but but not if America is anti-Catholic, of course, and not if it's. But what's happened is we're living in a completely different world even today, the beginning of the 21st century. Not only is America increasingly anti-Catholic, but it's anti-Christian in general, even against Protestantism. Because we're living in a time of rapid secularization that is going on, and that's even a greater danger. So this problem of obedience to the government becomes even more problematic, you might say. Um the the command that Paul gives us here to be subject to the ruling authorities, for there is no authority except from God, becomes extremely difficult the more pagan a government becomes. But that's, in a sense, precisely the point here, because the government that Paul is talking about here in Rome 
is by no means a government that is favorable to Christianity. Yeah. It's a government in many ways that was anti-Christian. Uh, and yet Paul says that we should live um, in subjection to this government, not unlike what he tells Timothy over in chapter First uh, Timothy chapter 2, when he says that there is a, uh, that we should pray for those uh, in, in authority. And these for kings and for rulers, for those in authority. And why should we do that? Well, so that we might live, as he says, a peaceable life. We might live a life that is in godliness and holiness. And he say, adds, this is good and acceptable in the presence of God our Savior. So, in order for people to be able to live a life that is um, agreeable to the government, uh, we should first of all pray. We should we should be in intercession for these governmental rulers, um, and not allow ourselves to be drawn into you know extreme negativity about it. Does that mean that we should never obey the government? Paul is not dealing with that situation here. But that there does come a time when that's the case. We know that from the book of Acts. But here he's talking about the day-to-day situation where in the normal course of things, we recognize that the government has a purpose of reinforcing the good and punishing the bad. And that is something we can agree with. Yeah, the... Uh, um just another side, as we look now at Romans 13 directly, Ken, we've been talking about it, but what fascinates me about this, Ken, is the reason that these passages are so important, one of the reasons they're so important, they're infallible, inspired scripture, but when we look at Paul's own conversion experience, when we read in Acts chapter 9 that he gets knocked off his horse, we all know the story, and he's converted. But when you look at in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 and in Acts, we realize that in our minds we might think about Paul gets knocked off his horse, he's converted, and now everybody loves him, and so now he's this great missionary. And that ain't the truth, is that because of his background, the baggage that he brought with them, as a committed Pharisee persecuting the church, he gets converted. That doesn't mean that his character and who he is is almost automatically changed. Ken, you and I are both converts. We know that's one thing to, to recognize the beauty of the church and the teachings of the church, but it takes a while for us to change. Yeah, it does. Grace it? works on us. And we recognize from Scripture, it took Paul, if you add up all the years between the time he converted and the time he began his missionary journey with Barnabas, about 17 or more years, mm-hmm. many, many years. And he was away for about 10 or 12, 13, 14 of those years, completely in, away in Tarsus with no connection with anybody. And so what is he doing? Uh, I mean, well, he's learning to be a better tent maker. We know that. That's how he supported himself. But there's that time of him reflecting. How do you take all of the Jewish teachings of the Old Testament, and how do you take the teachings of Christ, and you put all that together to apply it to our lives, to live out? And so in a way, what we see in Romans 13 
is the reflection of a man who's both a Jew and a Roman, trying to understand how to live out the teachings of Christ in the world as it's expanding in obedience to Christ's call to go out and make disciples of all nations. You've got to live, learn how to live in those nations. And that's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 13. Yeah, and what what I think he says here that's of significance, I think chapter 13, for our audience who is, you know, very careful about understanding Scripture, chapter 13, you notice, has kind of two different sections in it. One is verses 1 down to about verse 7, where he talks about obedience to the the present and governing authorities, uh, that the governing authority is for uh, rewarding the good and punishing the evil. And it's our, it's our responsibility not to live in rebellion against them. But in verses 6 through 7, then he talks about uh, taxes and revenue and so forth. That is, it's, it's, it's talking about specific tasks. And then that contrasts with verses 8 through the end of the chapter, um, where he talks, where he's generalizing and he talks about this obligation to love. And that is a universal obligation. It's not directed to specific groups of people. It's responsible. It's a, a, a responsibility for a Christian that applies to everyone. And so when Paul asks the question, well, well, what does it mean really to love? He means... He, or he gives us the answer by giving us specific commandments. Mm. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. In other words, it's living in obedience to God's commands in the midst of a pagan environment, which constitutes love for that those people as well as for God. And the way that we do this is summarized in the very end of the chapter in verse 14. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not give any thought, you'll not make any provision for the flesh. I, I believe C.S. Lewis said something about love here that was really relevant. And, uh, Marcus, what was that exactly? I can't remember. In his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, he dealt with this command to love recognizing that, I mean, he's writing how many years ago, Ken? You know, yeah, 80 50s, years ago, you know, yeah, 70 yeah. years ago, 60 years ago. Um, and it's even worse today, uh, 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 recognizing that our world has a misunderstanding of what love means and assume love is something that's an outpouring of our emotions, our affection. Um, so we, when we think of love in those terms, then... We think about, well, how am I to love my enemy? I can't stand him. I don't like him, you know. Uh, I hate my enemy. Well, how am I to love him, you know? So how do you do that? And, and he makes this great distinction. And he, he dresses it primarily in relationship to the first commandment. How do you love God? Because if we understand love in an emotion, then how do you love God? How do you understand loving God? If we understand love as an emotion, an affection, an infatuation, and he says, no, and here's, here is Lewis's statement. He says, if you really love God, then what would you do? Now think about that. If you really love God, then what would you do? And then he says, once you've figured that out, 
do it. That's love of God. If you really love God, then what will you do? And once you've figured that out, then do it. So in other words, what, what Lewis is saying is that love is a matter of our intellect and then the obedience of our will, guided by grace. Because we can't love our neighbor, neighbor apart from grace. And you can use that then, can to apply that to love of neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. Think of it this way. If you really loved your wife, what would you do? And once you've figured that out, do it. If you really love your kids, what would you do? Once you figured it out, do it. If you really loved your neighbor, once you figured it out, do it. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, it seems to me, because um, because love is, is acting in the best interest of another. It's not, a, as you said, they're a fat, infatuation. It's not a passing attraction. It's not responding to the moment. It's a consistent living in for the other person, for the benefit of the other person. And I think that's what, what Paul is saying here that is so valuable. Love is not something that we, we, we begin our journey by making, figuring it out, using our intellect to do that. Then we make a decision. But eventually, as we do this over and over again, it becomes part of the habit of our life. And that's what I think Paul means by these words at the very end of the chapter, put on the Lord Jesus Christ or be clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let Christ become such a part of you that what was once a decision and an act becomes an instinct for you now through a habit, a habit of loving so that you, you respond almost by second nature. Um, Ken, where's that, um, I'm pulling a blank right now, the scripture where Paul says, I think it was in Galatians, maybe it's Ephesians or Colossians, you know, we're working, faith working through love. Oh, I think that's, um, isn't that in Galatians chapter 5, I think it is? Um, let me see if I can find that real quick. It does um, say, you're, you're, you know, for you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Be servants of one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there in in Galatians 5, he's repeating exactly what he says here in Romans 13. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking for the phrase that says it's faith working out in love. Uh, The necessity of the connection be faith is it works. No, that, that the essence of yeah, putting on the Lord Jesus is faith being expressed in our love. Yeah, he says in Galatians chapter five. I'll, I'll read verse um, four, verse five, to lead into verse six. Okay. But we, from faith, uh, we we are expecting the hope of righteousness by the Spirit. And then he says, "For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision." avails anything or is of any significance or holds any power, but faith working through love. Now, what what I think in that context he's saying in the context of Galatians is that whether you're a Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, when you're in Christ Jesus, that older, that old distinction 
doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't have any validity anymore. But what does have validity? It's faith, that is, it's trust in Jesus Christ that is working itself out day to day through the virtue of love. That's what makes the difference. All right, excellent. And, and if we see that as the background to all that's in Romans 13, then that's how you approach, okay, let's go back to 1 for, through 5 then, Ken. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Mm-hmm. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, Ken, in what way is the commandment of love the criteria that establishes verse 1 through 5, therefore how we live that out? in relationship to those who govern over us. Well, I think it it was wise to read verse 5 particularly because there he says it's necessary to be subject not only for the sake of wrath, that is, that the government is going to get you, so to speak, but for the sake of conscience. In other words, a person who is animated by love, love of God and love of neighbor, does what is right, as I told my grandson recently, you know, you have to have the philosophy of I'm going to do what's right no matter what anybody else does. In other words, when I understand what's right, then my conscience is formed and I'm going to do what's right. I'm not living anymore by the philosophy. I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to try to avoid getting caught. I'm going to try to avoid, you know, having to be punished for my sins. No, I'm going to do what's right because it is right. And that's acting in love. It's pleasing to God, and it's pleasing to one another. You know, it's it's a grace when God gives us people in our lives that show us that. In my case, it's my wife. She does what's right, regardless of of what the consequences are. And that's that's a great grace. And I think behind all this is the, the common calling, is that the goal with our authorities is to bring them to Jesus. Absolutely. So we'll, after Absolutely. the break, we'll pick up on that. That's the call, is to help our authorities discover Jesus Christ. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. 
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 13, and we're, we're spending a lot of time on it because we enjoy this passage, Ken, don't we? And uh, But also I think it's important <laughs> sure, sure. to look at some of the backgrounds. And I, and I do believe that one of the, the things that is in between the lines, there are a couple things that are between the lines that we have to remember when we when we ask, okay, why is Paul telling these Christians living in Rome to live this way, is that he's not telling the Roman Christians to live in a ghetto mentality, to just get by um, under an oppressive government, that they have a responsibility. These are the first generation Christians, and of all Christians of the last 2,000 years, they have the echo of the words of Jesus Christ that say, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's what they're called to do. So they're not merely converted in Rome so that they can therefore hide out and survive. That part of the goal is how do you get your neighbors to discover Jesus Christ. And we know from the stories of the early Christians that there were many in the government of Rome that eventually converted to the faith. I think some of the earliest uh, witnesses in the catacombs, the names are to people who were senators or wives of senators. So we see that the gospel, you know, Mm -hmm. rose within the government. And how else was it because they did, you know, were they putting soap boxes out in the middle of the Appian Way and, and preaching the gospel? Uh, was that how they did it? They didn't have soap boxes then, so that may not have happened. But, Ken, the reason was their love. That had to be the number one convincing uh, criteria because the Romans were seeing in these people a new life. They were seeing it through what Paul's talking about in Romans 13. Yeah, we, we hear two things in, in the Lord's discourses at the in the Gospel of John, the Five World Discourses, chapters 14 to 16 in John. We hear him saying there that it is by this that men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So the Roman pagans, they looked upon this small sect of people called Christians, um, 
And they looked and they saw, well, see how they love one another. Um, they called themselves brothers and sisters. And in fact, they were in, as a, as a clearly, I think, a, a mis, purposeful misrepresentation, they charged them with incest because they talked about loving their brothers and their sisters. And they, 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 they took that in a sexual sense. Along with being cannibals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And we know this from the early church fathers, right? Uh, but then the other thing is that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that that his disciples would be one, even as the Father and the Son were one. And why? That the world may know that you sent me, Father. Jesus prays to his Father that the world may know that you, Father, sent me, Christ, into the world. That's why I pray for the disciples to be one. The Christians were united in joy and love. And in that union with one another, that was a strong witness to these pagan authorities whom they had called, as Paul says in Romans 13, to obey, but to obey as a witness to the gospel. Behind, it seems to me, here we are, um, this program is being recorded during Holy Week and will be broadcast on the radio, uh, actually on on Holy Saturday, um, that it's good to remember that behind the teachings of Paul are always the teachings of Jesus. And I believe that he reflected over and over and over again in his, in his long retreat in Tarsus. And so we see behind this passage, in a relationship to the governing authorities, being subject to the governing authorities. Why? Well, the governing authorities, the pagan authorities in Rome, are not going to understand Christian values. And so if you know, the, any resistance to the Roman authorities is immediate death. So how are you going to open the authorities to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It begins with love. It begins with respecting them. God put them there. God gave them that authority. And our conscience needs to be formed on that. And this is based on the teachings of Jesus. And we see in John chapter 19, we hear this, that Jesus is been, has been dragged before the authority, Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus answered Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And upon this, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the pavement, seat at a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, Ken, there's so many things in that. But one of which we see Jesus recognizing that Pilate is only in power because God has placed him there. We also see Pilate as he's in a position of authority to act on conscience, but he is, his conscience is split because of the pressures on him from Rome. Historically, Pilate's already screwed up a couple times under Rome, so he's already yeah. under pressure uh, yeah. to keep 
power to keep control of Judea, and we have the Jewish leaders threatening Pilate that if Pilate doesn't do what they say, they're going to report him to Rome, and he's going to get kicked out. And so we have a we have a, a politician here who's buckling under, rather than doing what he knows in his gut is right. I think Jesus' answer is is thing when he says, "You have no power over me unless it was given to you from above." He's reminding him of his ultimate responsibility to rule and to make decisions in accord with truth, which is part of our responsibility as well. It's not just that we're subject in a sort of an mealy-mouthed way and not saying anything, but we are at the same time witnesses to the greater responsibility. And, you know, without sounding chauvinistic or, you know, self-nationalistic uh, you know, in a bad way, when you think about it, that's exactly what our our forefathers in this country were attempting to say. They were attempting to say that the governmental rulers in the Constitution, the preamble, and so forth, they're responsible to a greater authority. That's why those natural yeah. rights must be recognized, because the authority or those rights don't come from the government. They are there prior to the government. And uh, that's what Jesus, I think, is saying to Pilate. And that passage that you read from John 19 looks like it could have been written about today's politicians, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. The same basic problem of are you going to do the will of the people or are you going to do what's right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we see that. And just to tell the audience, we mentioned earlier that there have been a lot of fears over the centuries about whether a Catholic uh, is torn in their loyalties between the Pope and uh, the governing authorities in whatever country they live, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning in paragraph 1897, very clearly describes how the Church understands these passages, in fact, quotes them in, uh, in section 1899. The Catechism says, the authority required by the moral order derives from God, and quotes this passage of Scripture as the foundation for the teachings of the church. And then in verse 19, in section 1900 says, the duty of obedience requires all to give due honor to authority and to treat those who are charged to exercise it with respect and insofar as it is deserved with gratitude and goodwill. So as, Christ, as Catholic Christians, we are called to recognize, whether we like the politicians that are in position or not, that they in the great mystery of God, have been placed there. Now, they will stand before God for, for the talents they've been given. Remember the parable of the talents? Yeah. And how they invest those talents and how they use those talents. You know, our president, the vice president, the cabinet, the Congress, the local politicians, they have a responsibility before God. Yeah. And they'll stand with God before God for that. Right. Well, we have to remember the Spider-Man principle. <clears throat> the Spider-Man principle <laughs> is, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. If I have been given greater authority, uh, well, and you and I have because we're both husbands and fathers, and according, I think, to the teaching of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, we've been given the positions of leadership in our homes. Now that's our that that's not always a responsibility that I've rejoiced in, <laughs> you know. I, I would like I would like less responsibility, but with great responsibility comes with great power, with great ability, with great gifts 
come great responsibility because to whom much is given, much is required. And that's not just to a Christian. That's to every human being that that responsibility is proportionate to the power or the authority or the gifts of that we have been given. And I think that's what the catechism is saying here in response to, or as an interpretation of what Paul was saying. What about, well, I was going to say, there's also the Forrest Gump rule, which is stupid is what stupid does, you know. But, <laughs> yeah. you know we'll set that aside. We won't. But uh, in paragraph 1902, Ken, and I'd like you to reflect on these, uh, we see a quote from Thomas Aquinas, a human law has the character of law to the extent that it accords with right reason and thus derives from the eternal law. Insofar as it falls short of right reason, it is said to be an unjust law and thus has not so much the nature of law as of a kind of violence. Yeah, this is extremely important. This is the idea that is central to the Catholic faith that any legitimate government has a responsibility for its positive law, its human law, to reflect the eternal law of God. And that, again, even though our, our most of our founders were not Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic, uh, like Thomas Aquinas was, still they believed in this idea of natural law, which has almost been completely obliterated from our cultural consciousness, which is what we've got to return to, that our human laws must reflect the natural law, which is a reflection of the eternal law, which is in turn a reflection of the nature of God himself. Yeah, and it's it's getting scarier and scarier all the time because there are so many cats that have been let out of bags I don't think we can get them back in. Mm-hmm. What kind of a culture are we leaving for our children and our grandchildren? And it's getting tough. I mean, we look at Thomas More, who's a wonderful example of the very concept we're looking at, is that he was dragged before his good friend, Henry VIII, on the very question um, that we're dealing with. And Thomas More did not did not rebel against his government. No, he, he just he had to stand by his conscience that what the king was calling him to do was wrong. And so he yeah. was willing to take the consequences, which for Thomas More, as well as Bishop Fisher, were death and martyrdom. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they stand as modern examples that it's not only like these early Roman Christians against the pagan Romans, it's also within Christian countries or Christians that have been in countries that have been influenced by Christianity. It's also those like Henry VIII who are acting as he thought in the name of Christ in the church that were persecuting those. So the question comes down, am I standing for what is right? Am I standing for what is true? If the answer to that is yes, then I don't have any choice but to be like a Polycarp or a St. Thomas More or St. John Fisher. On the other hand, I have to make sure that I am right. And that's not a decision that I just make on my own. That's a decision I make in accord with the historic church as we're looking together at Scripture. My father, God rest his soul, was not a practicing Christian though I, I think he became one the last day of his life when he finally met with a priest. But I once asked him who, I was probing his thinking about the um, uh, the 16th century and who he would follow because he was quite a lover of history. And he chose Thomas More because he, he always admired Thomas More as a man of conscience. My dad even recognized that. But the issue of conscience for More was the authority of the church centered on the Pope. Yeah, on, yeah. So 
the danger of private interpretation, you know, like, you know, a Christian looking at verses one through five, what do I do with the government? I don't like this. Okay, so I'm free to go, you know, I obey the government no matter what. No, if you're in the army and, and, and your commander tells you to do something that's wrong, it doesn't mean you have to do it. No. You have to recognize your conscience. Well, how do I know if my conscience is right or wrong? That's why Christ gave us the church to guide our conscience in times of war, in times of peace. Right now we have a government that basically is pushing that we must be tolerant to any sexual lifestyle. Is that right or wrong? And we know people right now that in their businesses, they're, they're, they're finding that their businesses are being put in jeopardy because they're being forced to go against their conscience. Yeah, yeah this, this is a... a, a... You live in a state, Ken, but we shouldn't go there, right? <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, but the point about Thomas More that's interesting here too is that who did all Christians understand had the right and the authority to decide what was a valid marriage? Whether Henry had a valid marriage to Catherine of Aragon or not, who was the who was the instrument? I might say. To decide that question, was it the king or was it the church? Well, everybody in Christian Europe understood that the question of what a valid marriage is was decided by the church. The, but what, so what Henry's action did was it subjectivized the idea of how you define what a marriage is. And we're living with the consequences of that. Oh, yeah. 500 years later, where the only thing that makes a difference as to whether marriage is a marriage is, oh, does he love one another? Do they love one another? And so forth and so on. And and the, the, the question of children, the question of building society, which is what marriage and family are for, none of that comes into play in the people's minds. It's only a subjective decision. Um, yeah, so this is a this is a crucial issue. Yeah, and, and so it, it does get to the issue of if we disagree with our government or a law of the government, how do we treat those? And we recognize that they are in authority, whether they know it or not, because God has allowed them to be there in the great mystery of his will. He has given them great responsibility, so they need our prayers, as Ken, you pointed out. They need our support. But when we recognize that a law is unjust, as Thomas Aquinas talks about that, then we are to act on conscience but we are to do it in love, as Paul also says in Ephesians 4, that we are to speak the truth in love. Speak mm-hmm. the truth in love. Not just speak the truth and then use a cudgel to beat someone up, or not just love. Whatever, whatever our understanding is love, that, that ends within, with hyper-tolerance. And pretty soon we are today that there are no rules, and it's getting worse all the time. But speak the truth in love. The necessity of both. Well, how do I know what that is? That's why Christ, Christ gave us a church to understand what the truth is and what authentic love is. And that's what he's fleshing out in this paragraph. Verse 6 and 7, Ken, where Paul says, For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Ken, that sounds vaguely like something Jesus once said. (laughs) Yeah, wasn't that our Lord's words when he was asked about whether they should pay the tax uh, 
to Caesar, uh, something to that effect. Um, let me see if I can find Where is that passage, Mark? Matthew uh, 22, 17 through 22. Yeah, let me see if I can find that real quick. Yeah, this is with the story you remember where uh, they said to Jesus, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the money for the tax. And they brought him a coin. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled and left him and went away. I, I, I'm struck by that passage because it seems so accurately reflected in the catechism. In, cha, in, in section 1903, which just follows that section that you talked about, about Thomas Aquinas, this is what the catechism says. Authority is exercised legitimately. It means authority from the government. Only when it seeks the common good for the group concerned. And if it employs morally licit, that is permissible means, to attain it. If rulers were to enact unjust laws or take measures contrary to the moral order, such arrangements would not be binding in conscience. So what he's saying is that the Catholic Christian doesn't have to be bound in conscience to follow a law if that law is unjust. Uh, in such a case, now it quotes from John Paul the twenty or John the twenty third in his famous encyclical, social encyclical, Pachamintera, Peace on Earth. He says authority breaks down completely and results in shameful abuse when unjust laws or means of carrying out that law are done. I think we're seeing this right now oh, yeah. when Catholic nuns are forced by insurance to pay for abortions, you're asking yeah. them to use an unjust means to pay for an unjust cause. At that point, they do have the right of civil disobedience. Yeah, sometimes when I do scripture reading every morning and I I just follow the scriptures through and I'm not planning them liturgically and then I happen to be reading something and then it just strikes me, cracks me up when I'm finding that what I read this morning just hits right on to what we're talking about because I happen to be reading this morning in Genesis chapter 19 when the angels are with Lot and they say, Lot, get out of here. And it says Lot hesitated. You know, he hesitated. He held yeah. back. And then you know, uh, yeah, in verse 16, but he lingered. <laughs> so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him forth and set him outside the city. Flee for your life. Do not look back or step away. And of course, his wife yeah. looked back and she was stoned. But, yeah. you know, we live at a time. Are we reading the signs of the time? Yeah. Are we just compromising? Or... Are we recognizing the, our responsibility in our culture to live out love? And living out love sometimes means saying, that's wrong. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly wrong. why Paul goes on. And you're, what you just said, Marcus, is it's exactly why Paul says that our obligation is to love one another. Now we ask, what does that mean? That means living according to the commandments, according to verse 9. 
that the, and he quotes the commandments that have to do with other people. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. In other words, when we say we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we live according to righteousness and purpose. And that's true love. It's not loving someone to tolerate evil in the sense of just winking or, uh, or, or turning the, a blind eye uh, to sin. To really love means sometimes that we have to say, no, that's wrong. Now, you as a sinner can repent of that and turn back to God, but what you just did was wrong. And uh, in order to say that, that sometimes takes in a tremendous amount of courage and fortitude. You know, this draws us to the end here, 11 through 14, when he says, Besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, we live in a time, Ken, where it seems like everything in our culture is all about making provision for the flesh. Yeah. That defines our culture today. Yeah, if we're if we're not thinking, we're going to be drawn into that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. You're just going to be sucked into the middle of that. Becoming truly Christian, truly Catholic, Catholic being the fullness of Christian, uh, really requires a decision of the will to say, no, I'm going to live differently. You know, and we have to do that every day of our lives. And sometimes we fail. We go back to confession, but we've got to make that decision to live that way. You see, basically the fundamental problem with all governmental structures is that they try to control from the outside. Catholicism says, don't try to control from the outside, be transformed from the inside. Right, and we need to be models. You know, we sadly, within the Christian churches, are plenty of bad models. Yeah, Our Christian right. brothers have failed, and we can't point fingers. We have to look at ourselves, and what kind of model are we? To what extent, by grace, have we put on the Lord Jesus Christ? To what extent have we compromised? Lord, help us. Yeah. And as that old Genesis passage, we, we can't just linger and be drawn in. We've got to be obedient to God, even if it means coming out and being a model for how we are to live our lives in Jesus Christ. Ken, thank you for thank you, joining me. All of you, thank you for joining us on this program. I do pray that this is an encouragement. You go to deepinscripture.com and send us an email. Let us know how this program is encouragement to you. God bless.